Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. My name is Father Bonaventure, and I am joined by Father Gregory Pine, who is at the Thomistic Institute. And we are in the bowels of <laughs> Dominican Council Studies in the basement, as you can tell, these wonderful collection of books. Um, we thought we'd change the scene around a little bit, but uh, Father Gregory, what's uh, what's going on in Thomistic Institute? What is going on in the Thomistic Institute? Uh, we're just uh, plugging along with quarantine lectures, and we're starting to plan for next academic year. So as you may have heard, some universities are opening, some are kind of opening. What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. I've been um, in the basement here the whole time. Yeah, exactly. I just woke up after like a three and a half month nap. Um, yeah, so people are doing either in-class instruction or hybrid in-class and online instruction. Some people, it seems, have already made the choice to go just online. So seeing as our ministry is, you know, for, for college students on college campuses, it can be difficult to get college students to congregate on college campuses mm. when they're not there. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we got some obstacles, okay. but uh, we're overcoming them. That's fantastic. Which is code for we're planning to overcome them. Excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's that. Anything for the summer that uh, still holds for you? You have any big projects before? Uh, Huge projects. Head off to Switzerland at Summer some point? projects, yeah. Okay, summer projects. Yeah, I'll be out in uh, Estes Park for two weeks um, with Focus to do summer projects, which is a thing that they have there where their students work at the YMCA of the Rockies, and then they have the opportunity for formation in the evenings and on their off days. So I'll go do spiritual direction, confession, mass, etc. And then uh, after that, we actually have two conferences, two Thomistic Institute conferences. We're going to have one for our student leaders from our different uh, campuses, universities. And then we're going to have an intellectual retreat. um, And it's going to be called Virtuous Autonomy, Freedom Mm. and Dependence in a Technological Age, featuring the likes of uh, John O'Callaghan from Notre Dame University, the University of Notre Dame. Yeah, I do. Um, And then um, Jim Madden from Benedictine College. Yeah, so it should be great. Stellar cast. Um, and if you want to get an autograph from Father Gregory on any of these things, uh, just throw up to Colorado around that time. They need to buy tickets in advance or something, I suspect. Um, so for the, the no student- one's listening can actually be involved in this. <laughs> but <laughs> the student leadership conference is open to our student leaders. That's uh, great. And then the intellectual retreat is open to yeah college students, both undergraduate and graduate, mostly graduate, but yeah undergraduate as well. And you can apply for that once it goes live on the website, which will have happened by the time this episode posts. That's fantastic. We're live, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> That's great. Well, all that stuff's just prolegomenon. Who cares about it anyway? Because we're talking about, as we usually do, Father Gregory and I usually talk about literature, some literature and X or X, literature or something, mm-hmm. theology. things. And this time we decided to, I mean, kind of, if you've been following along the series, we kind of go back and forth between like an author I like and Father Gregory hates and an author that Father Gregory likes and I really don't like. Um, so we're kind of switching again to to his favorite here, Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> Although I'm not I'm not opposed to Flannery O'Connor, as we'll find out. We'll spend most of the time listening to Father Gregory on this. But uh, Father Gregory, how did you first meet Flannery O'Connor? Who introduced you to her and her writings? And then we'll talk a little about her biography. Yeah, I first met Flannery O'Connor, I guess, uh, in the novitiate. Mm-hmm. I suppose I had heard of her a little bit because I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville, and there's a literature professor there, uh, Stephen Lewis, oh, yes. who is um, who's written on her and loves her very much. Translated Jean Luc Marion or Claude, Claude Romano, yeah, phenomenology tradition stuff. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, well, he was. Um, I took part in Communion Liberation School of Community my senior year of school, and he was the moderator, the facilitator. So I got to know him a little bit then. He's a great man. 
And um, yeah, so I knew that people whom I liked and respected cared about Flannery O'Connor. So I figured there was something to it. So when we got to the novitiate, I just started reading the, uh, the short stories. That's great. Yeah. And it's always good to have recommendations of people you respect with literature. Otherwise, mm. you might get stuff you don't like, um, which is great. And I, I actually was given, I was not, I, I knew about Flannery O'Connor, but he doesn't know about Flannery O'Connor. But it was by a student uh, named Sophie Palopoli, who I worked with my last year at Providence College, who was okay. the uh, head of faith formation. And she was an English major, okay. pre-med English major, and uh, delightful, very intelligent, and loved Flannery O'Connor. So she got me reading the short stories of Flannery O'Connor. Had you not read them before? No, I haven't. Get out. I couldn't read until I was 27. So, <laughs> well, I um, just hit the age of reason yesterday. There so. it is. Um, so, yeah, so I hadn't really read her, except for everyone's read. I assume if you haven't read this, then you should immediately stop this podcast and read this and then come back to this podcast. Uh, a Good Man is Hard to Find. I think that's anthologized in a bunch of different places. Yeah, yeah. The other one's Resurrection. The other things we might talk about, I, I didn't read. So yeah. maybe the maybe other people haven't either. So anyway, that's Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. But let's get into her. For those who don't know her, they might, you might know her by Peacocks and these sort of things. But for those who don't know her, do you want to just give a little brief biopic or something? What sure. she looks like, how thick her glasses were, that kind of stuff. <laughs> All the essentials. Yeah. So I think a lot of people class her, well, Paul Eli, uh, who is a visiting professor at Georgetown but lives in New York, he classes her with Walker Percy, Dorothy Day, and uh, Thomas Merton mm-hmm. as influential Catholics of the early mid 20th century, mm-hmm. literary Catholics specifically. Uh, so a lot of people know Walker Percy from his novels, Thomas Merton from his spiritual writings. They know Dorothy Day from The Long Loneliness and her work with the Catholic worker. Um, Flannery O'Connor is another one of these kind of leading literary lights. She's born in 1925. She died, I want to say, in 1964. Mm-hmm. I have it written down, so I'll just look. Yeah, 1964. Uh, she's famous for her association with Georgia. She died on her family property in Milledgeville, which famously was home to uh, tens of dozens of peacocks and peahens. Thomas Merton was always asking about the peacocks. Yeah, he you got to. to know. Yeah. She, she has a, um, a handful of short stories, perhaps for which she is best known. She wrote two novels. So the, the, the short stories for which she's best known are the collections, A Good Man is Hard to Find, mm-hmm. and then Everything That Rises Must Converge, mm-hmm. which title is taken from a work of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Um, and then she wrote two novels, the first of which is called Wise Blood, and then the other of which is called Escaping My Mind Right Now. Um, the Violent Barrett Away. The Violent Barrett Away. Bingo. Nice. Yeah. And then um, there's like a collection of her letters. Oh, uh, sorry. This is the complete stories. This is the complete there stories for those like who didn't see it. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a collection of her letters called The Habit of Being, mm-hmm. and then there's a collection of her essays, the first of which is about peacocks. And it's called Mystery and Manners. Hmm. Uh, and I would actually recommend that if you haven't read anything by her, that you start with Mystery and Manners. Oh, Sometimes it's helpful to hear a little bit of her theory before seeing her at work. Right. Because my experience was, I don't know that I was ready to read her when I did read her. And some of her stories, which we're going to get into, can be a little bit shocking. Um, so, yes, you almost have to brace yourself for impact. And hearing a little bit about her literary theory can be helpful for that. That's right. Okay, so let's get... Let's dig in a little bit and talk about her, her structure of her stories or her intentions or her aims, that kind of stuff. So this is a, we could say it's like a pre-reader. So before you read her stories, this yeah. podcast will get you a sense of, of what's going on as opposed to just jumping right in. Not you can't just jump right in, but at least give you, and hopefully whet your appetite and have you desire it because once you know something, you, you might love it. Mm. So um, yeah. You go. So what, tell me about some structure stuff about what, what's her, what's her vision, what she's up to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are we, what are we, what should we expecting or not expecting? Sure. So you can take it from the vantage of what people first hear about her or what people first maybe 
uh, judge her to be about upon an initial foray into her works. Um, and then you can also take it from how she describes what she's about. We're going to do like a, a combination of both. Great. So I think that um, one thing that, that we can emphasize from the outset is she's very much focused on moments of conversion. So you might read a Hemingway short story and the guy starts off somewhat uninspired and mm -hmm. he proceeds in uninspired fashion and then he ends in uninspired fashion. There's, there's not a truth. Exactly. Yeah. There's, truth. there's not a ton of movement in a lot of these yeah. things. And if there is movement, it's a kind of tragic uh, revelation of the way things have always been. Mm -hmm. And you have to, uh, yeah, you have to just reconcile yourself to that fact where I think uh, Flannery O'Connor has a very, yeah, a conversion based, uh, outlook on life. She mm -hmm. sees the whole world as, you know, charged with the grandeur of God, to use Gerard Manley Hopkins' term, or Christ haunted, to use her own term. Mm. Um, yep. And that there, are, there, are, all of her characters are kind of like poised for a moment of coming better to understand themselves, coming better to understand the reality with which they're surrounded, coming better to understand the Lord, uh, yeah, who addresses them and to whom they are addressed. And it's not to say that they're like confessional, but that there are a lot of moments that are uh, kind of they, they have this movement towards a conversion. Mm -hmm. um, and for her, it's a matter of artistry because she thinks that it's a matter of seeing. So we're accustomed to see in a particular way. And for us, conversion, like, you know, metanoia, the transformation of your mind is a matter of, of getting a new vision into reality. And what's interesting about Flannery O'Connor is I think a lot of, when you think Catholic authors, you know, you think of like, oh, Catholic lit art. You think of like Catholic movies, of saints movies. And these are just sappy, over-the-top kind of moralistic tales that isn't good art and just but has a good point, moral point to it. And I think people could think, oh, a Catholic author must, to be a Catholic author, you must have these kind of points that you just beat over the head someone with or moral points that you could like highlight and then put on a bullet point in the back of the Sophia Press or some other book or something. You could have so quick takeaway points. Yeah. Um, and Flannery O'Connor like all the good Catholic authors of the 20th century have, will have none of that. Yeah. They're all distinctive styles. I kind of think she's similar to Graham Greene in that way. Um, that That's not over the top. There's nothing, there, there are deep morals about this, but you're not just going to be able to read them off right away. You're going to have to be living in those things. Yeah. And she, so she reacted against like an overly conceptual approach to fiction or mm -hmm. to narrative. So for her, it's not so much a matter of communicating like propositional truths. Like at the end of this story, you should know that Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God. Or at the end of this story, you should know that adultery is a sin. She's more so about communicating an experience, right? Mm -hmm. So she has had an experience and that experience has shaped her. And she also has these artistic capacities to transpose that experience into something that you can now participate. And so it's, it's not so much a matter of like her transmitting from her mind to your mind a thought. It's a matter of her inviting you or welcoming you, welcoming you into an experience of, of a thing. Um, so she'll, she'll, she'll write in Mystery of Manner. She says that the meaning of fiction is not abstract meaning, but experienced meaning. Um, and she'll say that you'll fail when the story becomes simply a problem to be solved, something which you evaporate to get instant enlightenment. So it's not for her a matter of like <clears throat> uh, a morality tale. It's not for her of hyper allegorization. You know, it's like this stands for this and this stands for this and this stands for that. It's rather that she has a kind of confidence that um, one human experience can speak to another person's human experience. Right. And that that has a real potency or force, which is cool because otherwise things kind of get Saint movie ish. 
And you might think, well, ex all this experience stuff is kind of fuzzy and this is going to be like feel good stuff. And when people think of experience, people think of feelings and subjectivity and this sort of thing. So people might say, oh, so Flannery O'Connor is just going to get you kind of a feel good or at least a, a experience that you can like just sit in and maybe you enjoy and it's pleasure reading or something. Would you say that's a fair description of Flannery O'Connor's stories and how she, what, what she wants to get us to experience? Yeah, so she, she so nice. This is sweet. She rejects that at the outset and she does so um, with a particular purpose in mind. So for instance, like when, when some people would read her stories, well, what we're going to come to talk about is that a lot of her stories are grotesque. Mm. Um, so like there's a Bible salesman in one of her stories called good country people who seems like a decent guy. And then he ended up spoiler alert, seducing a woman and then stealing her false leg, her prosthetic limb, you know? So like you read that and you're like, what is going on? This lady is creepy and this story is deeply unsettling. Yes. Um, and so Catholics of her day and age, you know, she started publishing these short stories in the 40s. We said that she died in the mid 60s. They're expecting, you know, they hear that Flannery O'Connor is this great Catholic author. Mm -hmm. So they're expecting her to write saint stories. They're expecting her to write pious fiction. They're expecting her to write something that's going to help their devotional life in a kind of straightforward or direct way. Yes. And she just says, not a chance. Not going to happen. No, no, yeah. no, no chance in the world. Instead, hide the children. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to talk, we want to talk more. So hide your children for a moment. <laughs> we're going to talk about the grotesque parts. We'll be back in just a moment to talk more about Flannery O'Connor to delve into the, what, what her vision is and how she plays it out in the, the stories and talk a little more detail about specific ones there. So stay tuned with God's Blaney. We're back talking about Flannery O'Connor. This is Godsplaining. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. Welcome back to Godsplaining. This is another literature episode with Father Gregory and myself. Um, we're talking this time about one of Father Gregory's favorite authors, or <laughs> he has so many. Um, I only have a few people because I can't read. Um, but this one is uh, one that we do share and like, um, and it's Flannery O'Connor. And we just got of discussing how she was very different from the Catholic authors people expect, or at least the, the stories people expected. They were expecting pious fiction from a Catholic, of course. And you can think of maybe like C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, this kind of direct allegory. And she says, no, no allegory. And in fact, it's going to be like gruesome and gothic or something's dark, but in a real, real hard way, um, but a beautiful way too. So it's, this isn't just, you know, uh, like, it's not as if it's an accident on the car on the road and then you're looking, it's like a Catholic car accident that you mm. wander by. It's not, it's not that, but it is, <laughs> it is lively. So um, tell us more about the, about this grotesque aspect, the reaction to it, but then the point to it, what she was doing with it. It's not just some avant-garde kind of uh, exhibitionism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what's, what's going on? So I think, and I think we've talked about this previously with other literature episodes, but that the point of, the literary arts, the novelistic art is to tell the truth and there's no real point beyond that. So um, a lot of people think about what may serve as secondary ends and they would have them instead serve as primary ends. So like this for her is not apologetic fiction. When she sets out to write, actually somebody like one of her, uh, at one of her book readings, I think one of her uh, auditors asked her why she wrote or why she became an author. And she said, I'm good at it. Right. Which is, uh, is not what you would expect. You know, you expect her to say like, I've, I felt this calling from the Lord. Mm -hmm. I, I think of it as a kind of vocation. 
Um, for me, it was always a matter of deep conviction. You know, she just said, no, I'm just good at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it reminds me of something that I read from Dorothy Sayers, who she has these essays in a Sophia Institute press book, mm-hmm. actually, which has a new title because that's what they do with all books. They give them new titles and then republish them. Ooh, um, in the back. Yeah, but there's, a, uh, there's an essay in there about work. And she talks about how the standard of whether the work is good is the work, right? So the standard of whether the work is good isn't your intention. Like I really, really intended to make a great saint film, you know, that would edify yes. people uh, or that would serve apologetic ends. That's not the case. The standard is, is a good work. So if she is to tell the truth and if she is to make a good short story, whether or not it is depends on what you have, you know, like what you have in your hands. Is this yes. a good thing? And it may in turn prove for people an occasion of conversion. It may prove a kind of apologetic touchstone as you describe what the nature of grace is and to what extent it's violent in your conversations with Protestants. But that is not principally what she intended. She intended to tell the truth and make a beautiful thing. Mm, I want to just... You said that grace and violence use that in the same term. Mm. Grace can be violent, which I think most people don't. Again, grace is like a precious moments thing, and violence like things we try to we try to avoid as best possible. But I think uh, yeah, grace is violent could be a neat title for one of her collections <laughs> or something, or a sort of essay on her or something. Or I'll just give it to you right now. So what, what do you mean, what, what do you mean by her seeing grace as violent? Right. So she has. Um, so on the one hand, grace is not violent because grace accords with nature, and we think about violence as being contrary to nature. So grace is deeply uh, concordant with our natural aspirations, but in the process of healing them and elevating them, mm. sometimes it upsets uh, you know, our sensibilities or our settled convictions, which may prove to have been false. Um, so she has this- violent. Grace, I mean, I think grace can appear violent to yeah, a yeah, fallen yeah. creature, yep. even though per se in itself, grace isn't violent. Of course, it's ultimate peace as Augustine talks about, but yes, exactly. So she might be, she's always, she's writing maybe from the lens of the fallen, the fallen creature. Yeah. So, so in a lot of her stories, she has a lot of grotesque imagery. So she's often dealing with broken people in broken situations. Many of her characters have a physical disability or a debilitating illness. Like a centaur or something? Uh, <laughs> That's a hybridization of form, not necessarily a disability. Tell that to a centaur, they'd be offended. Okay. All right, a, broke, a centaur that only has one leg? Uh, yeah, like that. Yeah, Got like it. a centaur okay. that only has one leg. Good. Or like a deer that only has three legs. Um, so it's, it's some, something is, these, like many of her characters are disabled, and that's usually used to display a moral disability. It's used as a way by which to kind of reveal or point to, because she, you know, these are short stories, they're 15 pages long. Mm-hmm. So you can afford to be subtle and nuanced, but not too subtle and not too nuanced. Right because you got to get a point across, um, not necessarily like a didactic point, but a point. Um, and so, yeah, she uses imagery in a way that can appear to some as grotesque, but often registers as violent. So an example story, have you read The River uh, relatively early? No. Okay, so it starts with like a kind of Sunday go to meeting prayer service by the edge of a river, and this boy goes with his caregiver, and he sees people baptized, and the imagery sticks with him, it moves him, and many things happen in the course of the story, but at the end of it, he's being pursued by a bad man. Um, and does. as one is wont to be pursued by, um, and the way that he escapes the grasp of this bad man is by returning to the river. Problem is he can't swim, okay? Mm. So he descends into the river and then he dies, okay? So this is an awful story. And if you're hearing it just in those terms, you're like, how inartful and how devastating. But, okay, the point is this, and I heard this from a guy named Bill Gonch, who's a literature student at uh, the University of Maryland. And he talked about it in these terms. He says, the world has just grown weary of our imagery. Mm. 
-hmm. right? So like baptism, for instance, you signify the cleansing of sin by cleansing with physical cleansing with water. That's right. Right. Um, so you have this, you know, like washing themes are often taken to be sacramental imagery in literature from whatever time to whatever time. But modern man has grown weary of imagery. So he no longer cares too terribly much to see cleansing with water signify cleansing from sin uh, because he's just exhausted. And so what, what, what Flannery O'Connor does is that she transposes that kind of sign value mm -hmm. and just puts it into a new register. So what else is true about baptism? Well, in Romans and in Colossians, St. Paul says that you are entombed with Christ. So you die with Christ. Christ. You know, so there's death in the water, and then you, you rise from the water, and you, you live the life of the new man. So she uses now death to signify baptism. So this man is, well, this boy is delivered from his pursuer. Um, but rather than it being by a simple washing or a cleansing, it's now by a kind of murder, uh, which is startling and terrible. Mm -hmm. But she thinks that we need to be returned to our senses by startling and terrible imagery. Yeah. So she writes in that particular way because she's worried about modern man is basically anesthetized or desensitized to anything real. And again, what's interesting about Flannery O'Connor is even though she's Catholic, um, she writes in a very distinctive way. She also almost never writes about Catholics. No. Like there's very few Catholics in, yeah. her, in, in her books, but she insists on a strong Catholic vision of the sacraments, particularly yeah. of grace, of original sin, of need for salvation, of conversion, all this stuff yeah. um, that comes into that through these, again, writing in very stark figures and startling lines that, that kind of talk. Yeah. So like she says, there are three principal Christian doctrines that she thinks stands at the heart of all narrative, all story, uh, the fall, the redemption and the last judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, but she also says that we, you know, modern man, has kind of grown, like you said, desensitized to his need for redemption. And so he needs communicated to him the fact of his sinfulness. Otherwise, he won't be able to recognize redemption as a deliverance, as a having been purchased. Um, so she's, you know, she wants to kind of get you to the last judgment, as it were. This is not in every, in every particular case. But in order to get there, you need to see it as an arrival point. So you need to have an appreciation for where you set out from, you know, the sin. And then who is to get you there? Redemption. So often she communicates just those points, again, not in an overly didactic way. She communicates just those points, but in, but in startling ways. A famous line, again, from one of the essays in Mystery and Manners, it's often quoted is, um, you know, for, you know, like if you can presume that your audience shares the vision that you do, you can speak to them in relatively simple and subtle terms. But if you cannot, uh, then you have to impress your point. And she'll say something like, uh, to the hard of hearing you shout, and to the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of mystagogical sense, uh, that's at work in her literature. She's taking you by the hand and she's leading you into the mysteries, but she recognizes that you've been living a sedentary lifestyle and you're kind of like, you're in your recliner chair and you're like kind of tucked and you've been, you know, like slouched and you're like patting a golden retriever and you have a beer and a beer koozie and like, nothing's going to upset you from this position yeah. until such time she grabs your hand and rips you out of it. So, I mean, yeah, for some people it can seem, it can seem over the top. Yeah, no, it's, well, that's fair, but it, it is, there, there's something about crises, as we all might know, that startle one and draw one to rethink about fundamental issues. C.S. Lewis talks about us in The Problem of Pain. He thinks pain is kind of a, a megaphone of God to remind us to wake us up, in a sense. Um, and she does this through her own sort of ways. Um, any other particular story that strikes you as quintessentially Flannery? So yeah, yeah. To get a feel for this and another image maybe? Yeah, there's, I guess one thing I would say at the outset is there are no spoilers because the first, I think the first time, every time you read mm. 
a story dies. first. Yeah. Every, yeah, everything's it's always bad. Gonna end up as bad as you want. It it's rough, and yeah. the first few times that you read some of her stories, you're like, "This is terrible, and I should never read it again." It, it I think, it improves with each read, mm-hmm. which is a sign of a good, of a good story. Like, I would never read an Agatha Christie novel again unless I had forgotten it, uh, or if I were forced to. You know, it's like a lot of them are printed on that type of paper that says, throw me away. Yes. You know, like, take this with you to the beach, get sand in the spine, and then never think of me again. Yeah. Whereas with her stuff, you can keep coming back to it because mm-hmm. it, it improves. So these are spoilers, but don't worry because they get they get better. So one, um, I think one of her best stories is called Greenleaf, which is in the collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. And um, there's this kind of like a, a gradual buildup where you come to appreciate this woman and you experience you experience from her vantage the different resentments that have accumulated in her life, and you appreciate how those resentments effectively keep her from um, loving those with whom she lives or with whom she has been thrown in. So there's like folks that's supposed to be taking care of her property, but they've been somewhat negligent in their responsibilities, and as a result of which one of the bulls has gotten out, um, or maybe it's like a, a, one of the bulls of the neighbors has gotten mm-hmm. out. And like the whole time throughout the course of the story, she's insisting upon like what other people ought to do and how they ought to treat her and others and how there's no decency left in the world and blah, blah, blah. But as she's griping, as she's nagging, you come to discover that she's just as um, detestable a character as the next guy, but she can't see it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that for her is very damning because if you can't acknowledge it, then how are you supposed to repent of it? Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, like she finally gets the person whom she wants to animate, you know, moving and he's like looking for the bull and he's going through the different parts of the property and she's, you know, sitting with her vehicle, just kind of waiting on him to perform the task that he ought to have done already. But what she is insisting upon and she is supervising to ensure comes off. And then the bull does reappear, um, but he's out of control. And the guy who's supposed to wrangle him is running behind saying like, watch out, watch out. And then the bull eventually gores her. I was going to say, see, this is the thing with Flannery O'Connor is you can, as you hear the story, you know exactly what's going to happen. Like this woman, this old woman's going to get gored. Yeah. Um, she got which, gored. Yeah. I mean, it's going to happen. And very, very few stories today you can read or involve an old woman getting gored. Gored by a bull. Um, yeah. Gored, yeah. But at the end, she says something like, and it, and it looked as if she embraced the bull. And if you, if you look at the Wikipedia page for this story, it mm-hmm. says in the bull is Christ, which at which point it's just like, throw your hands up. Okay. But, yeah. but I, I wouldn't give that interpretation. I just say that sometimes if you have become so inured to reality, mm-hmm. you need reality to gore you, gore you. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, she, she, um, Flannery O'Connor will gore you with reality. But it, the other part of it, I like about her is <laughs> all of her characters are normal people. Yeah, like yeah. she gets it now. Now it's normal people in the South. So there's a, there's a bit of a, you have to, but they're, they're the ordinary, dialect, the patois. Yeah, they're ordinary characters, though. That's yeah. why like, there's no particular all-stars here. There's no particular geniuses or power players, this kind of thing. They're just ordinary family people, ordinary country people who are, well, up to no good in a way, which is a personification of how we all kind of involve ourselves in things. So yeah. I like it's 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 approachable, macabre writing. Yeah, you know, like it's. It, she's classed as Southern Gothic by some. Southern Gothic, and she's Southern anthologized Gothic. in a lot of like great 20th century American authors, irrespective yeah. of you know religious background. But the fact she often writes about Protestants, she writes about what she knows, yes. and she's living in the mid 20th century South, and most of the people whom she knows are Protestant. Um, she writes typically about white people, so you know she knows some black people, but she doesn't write about them as much. It's there's kind of like a modesty in her prose in the way you find in like Jane Austen, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, she never portrays characters, so like male characters conversing with each other apart from the company of women. So if if there's ever a conversation, 
she there's always a woman present so she doesn't speculate as to what men say behind closed doors mm -hmm. also she never sounds the thoughts of a man you know so there's a kind of there's a kind of modesty yes. right there's a similar modesty in flannery o'connor like she's about the work of telling the truth which for her is very much bound up in the practical intellect like what has she done and what has she seen done and what judgments does she formulate based on that she's not speculating as to what people might think or might do or might blah 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 she knows what she knows and so to tell the truth she has to stay close to that yeah I'll just as we as we finish up here um obviously there's a lot of those the a lot of the sin and redeemed for redemption and such um but grace also figures in her work i suppose what is what is a uh, o'connorian or a flannerian grace look like because i mean there's a Graham Greene version of Grace, there's yeah, a yeah, yeah. Walker person. What do, what do you think, would you say, in a kind of soundbite for Flannery O'Connor, what does Grace look like for her? Or what examples do you have for, for that? Yeah, I would say that um, Grace comes like a bolt from the blue, but it, but it comes with a recognition of one's freedom and then an affirmation of the term of that freedom. So like a story that I'm thinking about is a good man is hard to find, which, uh, you know, classic. So there's this bad guy on the loose, a criminal who kills people named the Misfit. And then you meet this family, mom, they're all dad. Gonna die. Yeah, they're all, I mean, they're all going to die. They're all going to die. Uh, mom, dad, uh, boy, girl, and then grandma. Grandma's kind of a contemptible character because yeah. she's one of these, she complains, she gripes, yeah. she doesn't know her own business, right? She thinks that the place where they were supposed to go is over here and she, you know, misdirects the car and it ends up that they get confronted by the misfit because like she was supposed to have her she was supposed to leave her cat at home. She brought her cat in like a basket that the cat jumped out. It upset the vehicle. It ended up in a ditch. And now here they are before the very man whom they fear most. Um, and she's running her mouth and then she recognizes him. And now on account of the fact that she recognizes him, he can't let them go because they're living, walking proof that he's around in these parts. So he kills them, you know, like he kills every member of the family apart from her. And he's about to kill her last. And it's as he's about to kill her that she says, you know, like you could be my son. She recognizes in him, something lovable, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's like a kind of movement in her of compassion, of love that has previously been obscured because she, she's just been so detestable. Mm -hmm. she's, she's just frustrated and um, she can't operate as a mother as she would want to be. And she feels kind of hemmed in by her family situation, like she's imposing. And, you know, this all kind of registers for her as resentment and recrimination and frustration and sorrow. But then she has this moment uh, where her freedom is, you know, in her hands and she sees this man set before her whom she could love and he kills her. Right. Uh, but he said that woman would have been a saint if she had always had a gun held to her head. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then one of the other guys with the misfit makes as if to, you know, like malign her character, make fun of her. And he shuts him up, you know, because he has a kind of respect for her. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like the point is that when grace comes, it will, it will come in unexpected fashion. Um, but nothing that you have like lived and loved in anticipation of that moment is inconsequent. You know, so here's a mother uh, who wants to love as a mother, feels frustrated in her love as a mother, but now finds an opportunity to do so and she gives expression to it. Um, and that's not to say that like grace is like magic, mm -hmm. but it often comes, you know, in stark and in unexpected circumstances. And it's at those moments where, you know, your character, which has been forged to the present, uh, finds adequate outlet. So, yeah, she, I mean, she's, she, she seems dark, but there's a kind of optimism about her openness to and response to grace. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, 
we turn it over to you to read the works of Flannery O'Connor, starting with, what was the suggestion you had there? Uh, Mystery and Manners. Mystery and Manners, and then good maybe short stories. A Good Man is Hard to Find is probably the most famous one. Um, but we hope you enjoyed this episode of Godsplaining, and we hope that you'll share it with any friends that you have or people that might be interested, want to know about Flannery O'Connor, don't like Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> want any of that kind of stuff, please like us on uh, Facebook or whatever, those sort of social media, share these things around. Who knows? And uh, wish you all a safe, continued COVID tide, hopefully not too much longer. You never know. Who knows what Catholic stories will be created during this time, about mm. this time. So, uh, Father Bonaventure, Father Gregory, we wish you all the best and signing off for God's Plane this week. Thanks for listening to God's Plane, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.